hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we dive into the second part of our look at Ezekiel 8 through 11, where the glory of God leaves the temple. But with the concluding verdict of this dramatized judgment right in front of us, we'll have to wrestle with what we've done to our own rituals and sacred spaces today. like forever ago since I've done one of these Ezekiel episodes. A big reason for that actually is that I accepted a new position as a pastor on the eastern shore of Virginia. Definitely want to give thanks to God for that, especially in the middle of everything that's been going on. I know that interacting with people both inside and outside the church is really going to help me enrich my study of the Bible, and I'm so glad to have even more opportunities to talk to people about what's there. So there's going to be a lot more sermons popping up on Buy the Book Resources' website. If for some reason you're all the way caught up and you actually want to hear more, or maybe a little bit more likely, if you're getting a little tired of just hearing about Ezekiel over and over, uh, feel free to check out that sermon tab of the buythebookresources.com website. All right, so we're jumping back into our look at Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, this massive showstopper where the glory of God leaves the temple. And this is really like picking up a TV episode in the middle of it. So I would really encourage you, if you're just jumping into the Rebind or are pretty new to it, to start back at the beginning of the first episodes and work your way through at your own pace because it's all going to build on each other. So last week, we really focused in chapters 8 and 9 on this um, brilliant, sophisticated, and really profound theme and interchange of seeing. You know, the people say the Lord does not see, and yet he sees more clearly than they do what they're doing with their relationship with him. All right, but there's more to see here. Remember, chapters 8 through 11 are all one section, all one unfolding vision, and we've only checked out chapters 8 and 9. So I've asked Daniel Heiler over in Charlottesville, Virginia, to read chapters 10 through 11 for us. Ezekiel chapter 10. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house and the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim. And he took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. 
And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And for their appearances, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any way their four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever directions the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spikes, their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. And the second face was a human face and the third, the face of a lion, and the fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Shebar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Shebar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and each four wings, and underneath their wings was the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Shebar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. All right, now let's pause there for a minute. It can be a little hard to decipher exactly what's happening here because of the otherworldly kind of descriptions, but also because time is a bit jumbled here. It's like Ezekiel keeps interrupting himself and jumping from one scene or thought process to the other. And in fact, Daniel Block even claims that chapter 10 here is actually describing the same event as chapter 9, but from a different angle. Instead of focusing on the earthly consequences of the judgment on Jerusalem, like in chapter 9, we get a new focus on the spiritual realities and heavenly movement behind those judgments. He calls it a double exposure, which I think is cool. So, gotta keep in mind, we're not dealing with a documentary, we're dealing with a divine vision. One of those marot, if you remember. And chronological sequence does not necessarily govern how all the content here is arranged. It's more like a jigsaw puzzle with different pieces coming together in different places bit by bit till a picture starts to form. Some pieces we get here fit together with what happened in chapter 9, like the man clothed in linen and the mention of the glory of God, and some pieces fit together more with what happens in the next chapter, with the wheels and the cherubim and that, that vehicle on the move. And some of these pieces actually fit together with the first divine vision we got in chapter 1. And it starts to fill in that part of the picture. So in this chapter, chapter 10, there's really like three big things happening. 
On the one hand, there's an angel in this vision, or a man clothed in linen, whoever that is, who the Lord commissions to grab blazing coals of fire and scatter it over the city of Jerusalem. And he sort of goes off to do that off camera, and we don't really see what happens, but we can safely assume that that's exactly what happens. Now, this thread picks up on chapter 9, where we left off last week, where the man clothed in linen was commissioned to put a mark on the foreheads of the faithful remnant, who didn't just go along with the status quo or join in the self-deception, but actually groan over the detestable practices of the people. So this begs the question, like, what exactly was this blazing coal confetti supposed to signify? In Isaiah... It's actually kind of a positive thing. Chapter 6, 6 through 7 says, One of the seraphim flew to me, this is in Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. But the burning coal that the angelic figure grabs here has a very different purpose. Although thinking about the connections between those two could be really interesting. But remember, how we're saying this unfolding vision stitches together different pieces and pictures as we go. And there's even connections back to chapter 1, right? Well, in chapter 1 we saw a glimpse of these sort of coals and fire in the midst of the wheels, and we, like, did not understand why that was being mentioned there. What's the point of these coals back in chapter 1, this opening vision of God? But now, with the pieces starting to fill in, we can understand that this is a sign of God's holy judgment. And already in chapter 1, it's further evidence of why God showing up in the community of the exiles over in Babylon was maybe something to be overwhelmed and scared about in a good way, like the Lord is coming in judgment as a mighty warrior. All right, so that's one thing going on in chapter 10. Now, what else? Well, there's a lot of weird stuff about these cherubim, like really weird wheels within wheels with eyes and four faces, what the heck, right? Well, in verse 15, Ezekiel explicitly makes a connection between what he's seeing here and what he saw in chapter 1. So everything we learned from chapter 1, we can upload and import into our study of this chapter. We're not dealing with separate scenes of mythical creatures so much as a mobile chariot throne room. We don't want to let the weirdness bog us down so much that we miss the message. But it is good to be overwhelmed here. This is a strange otherworldly kind of vision because we're dealing with the holy presence of the transcendent otherworldly God. You'd be talking as jumbled and weird as Ezekiel if you saw what he saw. But remember, somehow the wheels and the cherubim are wrapped up together, whether they actually signify the same thing or, or not. They're attending to this glorious and mobile throne and moving it wherever it needs to go. And it's not limited by caster locks or rubber grooves or gear shifts or anything. They're omnidirectional. They're limitless. And in fact, this chapter fills in some more details about the mobile chariot scene we're picking up from chapter one, like telling us 
the creatures are cherubim, which is fitting, right? Because cherubim are associated with the temple in the Bible. So in the Holy of Holies, there's that Ark of the Covenant, where two golden cherubim statues stand attached, their wings touching each other. But Ezekiel gets a glimpse behind the curtain, as it were. We're not just dealing with dead statues here, Israel, okay? You think you can disgrace the Lord's covenant by turning your back right in front of the temple where those golden cherubim are? Well, then see what I'm seeing in the sixth dimension. Look, look at these cherubim. Look at what they're doing. They're carrying the glory of the Lord out of here. So that's the last thread here. Really, above and beyond what the man in linen goes off to do, and how these wheels and cherubim fit into the mobile throne scene, it's what's happening with the Lord's presence here that's the real showstopper. The glory of the Lord moved away from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim, verse 18 says. The cherubim lifted their wings and ascended from the earth right before my eyes. The wheels were beside them as they went. The glory of the Lord was above them, and it stopped at the entrance of the eastern gate of the Lord's house. That's huge. Let's finish out with chapter 11 before we talk about that. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men. And I saw among them Yazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatia, the son of Beniah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, The time is not near to build houses. The city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, Thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat and the city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And it came to pass, while I was prophesying, that Pelatia, the son of Beniah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make full end of the remnant of Israel? And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, 
all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me. And I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. So once again, there are a lot of moving pieces in this chapter. We do get a reminder at the beginning that the Spirit of the Lord is moving the prophet through this tour-guided vision of the temple. But after that, we almost forget this is a vision for a second. There's like a prophecy within a prophetic vision. Christopher Nolan would be proud. So, so we start out with a focus on these 25 leaders of the people at the Eastern Gate. And now, whether this is the inner court eastern gate or the outer court eastern gate we're still moving further away at this point instead of further in as the glory of god leaves the visionary camera follows after him but along the way yeah we we make a stop to single out this group of leaders who the lord considers to be wicked men giving wicked counsel and filling the city with dead bodies now, we might wonder, I mean, are these really like serial killers here? It seems unlikely Ezekiel's being literal here. But then again, there's a number of ways that that charge could actually be totally accurate. It could be wrapped up in the idolatry and pagan religious practices that we've already seen a lot of so far. Maybe there's violent sacrificial frenzies or something. I don't know. Or it could be judicial murder. In other words, corrupt courts ruled by these corrupt leaders and councils are given corrupt rulings leading to undeserved death sentences. That's another option. Or they might just be too impatient for all that and decide they have the right to mow down anyone who stands in their way for what they want to do. We know that they consider themselves pretty privileged and untouchable because the Lord says, hey, I know exactly what's going on in your mind. In fact, we see something that happens over and over in Ezekiel where the Lord brilliantly takes a popular saying, picks it apart, 
and repurposes it to show what he thinks instead. So, so these leaders are thinking, Jerusalem doomsday? Ha, yeah, right. No need to excavate and build somewhere else. We should be remodeling our vacation homes here in Israel. The city is the pot, and we're the meat, they say. Sounds a little strange to us, but the idea is the city is like this impenetrable barrier or, or bathtub, and they're free to float around because they're actually the MVPs. They are the untouchables, the little golden rubber duckies. I don't know. But did you catch how God flipped the saying on them? You're not the meat, he says. You're the butcher. And your victims in my book are the MVPs. And and I'm picking you out of the pot like inedible scraps. I'm taking you out of the tub and we'll deal with this outside. And while the prophecy is happening in this vision, bam, one of the leaders dies. Talk about shock and shaking you up. Yes, this is serious. Hello? Do you still think you're the meat in your favorite stew? Okay, but this segues into one of those Ezekiel interjections where we glimpse the heart and groaning of the prophet, where he sort of steps in for us as readers to give voice to our thought processing. Oh, Lord God, you're bringing the remnant of Israel to an end, he says. God, you at least promised a remnant, a faithful group of your followers. Is there not even hope for that anymore? And so we get the middle section of this chapter, a gracious glimmer of the hope that's coming for this remnant. These people who the leaders considered the worthless leftovers, they're actually the exiles who God promises, I will remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so that they'll keep my statutes and practice them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. Massively, massively important. God is not ditching the temple because he said, oh, well, the first draft didn't work too well. I'm just going to do something totally different now. It's not that the system is broken. It's the people that are broken so that the system doesn't work. So God's solution is, I will fundamentally change the people so they can actually live in these good commands that I've given them and walk with me. Now, verse 16 here is a little ambiguous on how exactly to interpret it. It could be that God is saying he's a little sanctuary for these exiles or that he's their sanctuary for a little while, like this is temporary in the grand scheme of things until a new temple system structure can be returned, or he's saying he's a a sanctuary to a few of them, i.e. the remnant. But regardless, the idea is that something new is coming down the line, a restoration of this system of living with God. But even in the meantime, For these exile leftovers in the foreign lands, God is the sanctuary for them that the temple was supposed to be. (laughs) At least in a sense, at least for a little while, at least a little sanctuary. 
It's important that we have that hope to hold on to because it's not looking good for the actual sanctuary in Jerusalem. In fact, these four chapters close with the tragic climax, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple complex altogether and goes off to the east. Okay, enough explanation. What do we take away from this showstopper? Don't ever forget how big a deal this is. It isn't like God is just saying, our business is relocating to a new location. All the things that made Israel what they're supposed to be, the sacrificial system, the Lord dwelling in the midst of his people, the attentive mercy of the living God that made them different from all the other nations, it's, it's gone. It's gone. It's a more devastating blow than the capital city doomsday, spiritually speaking. I think this shows us how the Lord is actively involved in our spiritual practices, whether to give them their value or to condemn their corruption. Our most precious rituals and sacred spaces find their true value in the responsive involvement of the Lord. Without that, they're nothing. The Israelites tried treating God like they treated their pet pagan gods. Rub the lamp at just the right spot, say the magic words, and you can get the God stuff that you want. But I think Ian DeGuid put it really well when he said, talking about these chapters, the Lord abandoned the city to the empty hope offered by the idols for which the people abandoned him. Remember what we said last week about how the people were right in front of this holy inner sanctum with their backs turned, longing for God's presence and pushing it out at the same time. To them, it may seem like God was just sitting silent in the background, business as usual, but Ezekiel pulls back the curtain here to show God's actual, active, responsive involvement in everything they're doing. The Lord truly sees us, and he's truly involved in our spiritual practices, whether to give them their value or to condemn their corruption. Our most precious rituals and sacred spaces find their true worth in the responsive involvement of God. He's been known to call out our abuse of those rituals and spiritual practices. Now, some Christian denominations and traditions, when I start talking about sacred space and, and rituals, immediately reflex, bad, bad, bad. Rituals are the opium of the masses. Rituals are the pots of boiling water that kill the frogs, the anesthesia of religious apathy. Down with root routine, up with the ingenuity and, and authenticity. And then... <laughs> There's other denominations and traditions that say, yes, yes, awesome. Rituals are awesome. Rituals are the diet and exercise of the soul. Sacred space is the original virtual reality. They're, they're both the needed incarnational remedy for an inundated and desensitized digital world. I mean, pick your poison. But it's almost a moot point because this passage isn't about whether rituals and sacred space are good or bad or whether we should have them because they're, they're there, okay? God has put them there, or at least we would all agree he's put some concrete, 
practices and times and spaces in place for every Christian to be a part of. Church gatherings, the Lord's Supper, baptism, uh, addressing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. I mean, we, we could go on. We aren't limited by the land of Israel anymore or the location of a temple complex. John 4.21 says, The time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, right? But that doesn't mean we're not in danger of doing the same things the Israelites did with the set-apart places and practices God gave us and them to live out our relationship with him. So here's some proof of that. Check out 1 Corinthians 11, 20-32. Now when you come together at the same place, you're not really eating the Lord's Supper. For when it's time to eat, everyone proceeds with his own supper. One is hungry and another becomes drunk. Do you not have houses so that you can eat and drink? Or are you trying to show contempt for the church of God by shaming those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I will not praise you for this. And then we get the part that we quote all the time when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, which really reads quite differently in context, as you can tell. 23, For I received from the Lord... What I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, it says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For this reason, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself first and in this way let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks without careful regard for the body eats and drinks judgment against himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and quite a few are dead. But if we examined ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you assemble, it does not lead to judgment. I will give directions about the other matters when I come. See, communion, this God-given spiritual practice, this ritual, if you will, this, this sacred time and space, was made into an experience of judgment because of the Lord's active involvement in what they're doing. Now, I'm not trying to make you scared to death every time you grab a wafer, but I do think a healthy fear of God in the middle of our rituals and practices is really needed. And I think that the temple vision in Ezekiel 8-11 through is a cautionary tale of how far things can get and how bad they can get when we totally miss that.
this is a shining example, scary as it is, of how the book of Ezekiel pokes and prods and probes into the ways that we've manipulated God's promises to wake us up to the actual heartfelt response he wants us to have when we bank on them. It's a lot to take in. There's a lot of different puzzle pieces being put together here, some bright and deeply hopeful, like the promise of a softened heart. But most of this here is targeted at the presumptuous leaders who came to Ezekiel on the Kibar Canal in the beginning of chapter 8 to get them to come to terms with God's true assessment of the status quo and where it's headed. Let's take the glimmer of hope to heart this week, guys. But let's also come to terms with what we see when we pull back the curtain on this six-dimensional vision in 8 to 11. Are we manipulating God's presence at our own convenience? Have we lived pretending that God only sees what we want him to? Are we those Israelites with their backs to the Holy of Holies right in front of it, longing for God's presence but pushing it out at the same time in our stubborn sin and status quo? Or do we see God's responsive involvement in all areas of our lives? I think as we're captivated with the departing presence of God, we have the opportunity to pay attention to God's active involvement in our spiritual practice. We, we, we have the opportunity to get captivated in the right way by his holy beauty and presence. In the words of the hymn, Hast thou heard him, seen him, known him? Is not thine a captured heart? Chief among ten thousand, own him, joyful, choose the better part. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Tis that look that melted Peter, tis that face that Stephen saw, tis that heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now unrivaled king. Lord, may we pause from our status quo to peer behind the curtain in Ezekiel so that your unrivaled captivating presence and beauty might be something we crown instead of turn our backs on. Amen. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning over at Andrew Horning Sound, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast, along with the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson. If you're enjoying The Rebind, be sure to spread the word. Give us a rating on iTunes. Leave us a review follow us on social media. We got plenty of ways to stay connected. Till next time.